episode of the Hoop Journal podcast. I'm your host, Dion, joined as always by my co-host, Mitch. All-star break has come and gone. We're now back into the swing of things with regular season basketball, uh, approaching this final stretch run of the regular season, about 30 or so games to go, depending on what team you are. Uh, so I want to talk about, you know, just w- what we think the biggest storylines are uh, for the remainder of this regular season, the most important things that we're going to be watching as we approach the playoffs. Before we get to that, though, I do want to spend just a few minutes discussing All-Star Weekend. Uh, it was obviously the hot topic in the world of sports since we last spoke. So, Mitch, first first and foremost, how you doing? And and secondly, what was your sort of level of involvement with All-Star Weekend? How tuned in were you to to these events live? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm, th- I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking, Mr. Sherman. You know, they, they never ask you how you're doing they always ask what you're doing so i really appreciate that but my level of involvement you know as you know i sat courtside um i got to see mickelon go back yeah, you're actually back. you were in the celebrity game weren't you yeah yeah no i was <laughs> i was i was um so in terms of level of involvement i would say that i was very passively involved in majority of the all-star game i will say this i will say this i was more kind of like engaged with the festivities leading up to the all-star game rather than the game itself. Mm. Now I know, I know East scores a record 211 points. Congratulations. Alleged viewership up 54%. Sure thing, Adam Silver, whatever you say, I think, and this might be a hot take, the most entertaining part of the all-star break for me was Steph playing Sabrina. Yeah. It honestly, and, and as NBA pointed it out, in this t- title, and this is true, if you go on NBA.com right now, slash all-star, slash 2024, Steph edges Sabrina. That's the title they went with. So, yes, thank you, NBA. You have you have not failed me in terms of how you present uh, all of this content. I, <laughs> I got to say, Mr. Sherman, I really like that idea of the competition. Uh, your boy, Jalen Brown, really, really, really disappointed mm. me. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. But I would say... If I were to rate this All-Star weekend as a whole, I would give it a solid 6.5, leaning on the higher end of the 0.5 rather than just a flat 6. Mm. Not disappointed as a whole, just kind of let down in individual instances. Right. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love how you had the same level of enthusiasm for the East scoring 211 points as Adam Silver did when he when he announced it after the game. I, I think 6.5 out of 10 is, is probably fair. It's like right on the right on the border of, of a passing grade because I yeah. I tried to be as tuned in as I could um for all these events save for like the celebrity game. Yeah, I, tr- I tried to be as tuned in as I could and I would say I was fairly entertained uh for the most part. There was some moments like you said that were definitely disappointing such as Jalen Brown's performance in the dunk contest, but I thought I thought it was a solid weekend. Like you said the Steph versus Sabrina thing was a lot of fun. Um it looks like they're going to bring it back next year so that's exciting, something to look forward to for sure. I, I do think though Obviously, um, the dunk contest has uh, fallen short of people's expectations for many years now. I- I'm at the point now where I'm thinking, like, there really is no satisfying the people when it comes to the dunk contest. Like, we really just got spoiled with the whole Aaron Gordon, Zach Levine thing. Zach, now, too good for too long. People just expect essentially that sort of performance every single year. And it's just not realistic. I really like. I really feel like next year they could bring back it could be Mac McClung going up against John Morant, Anthony Edwards, and Zion Williamson. People still wouldn't really care that much, wouldn't really tune in, and would still, as soon as it ended, just go to social media and shit on it for not being as good as they hope for it to be. So I'm kind of like 
I'm kind of over the whole complaining about All-Star Weekend thing. There's definitely a lot of changes that can be made that I talked about on Instagram. But for the most part, like it's it's intended to be a break for the players. And that's kind of how they treat it. But I like when it comes to like the All-Star game, the Rising Stars game, I'd love to see some defense being played. But at the same time, like it's it's not really something that bothers me as much as I think the mainstream to not be a, uh, you know, because every party needs a pooper. That's why they invited me to not be that guy. But uh, we're never going to get a 1v1 blacktop tournament. Oh, my God. I'm so tired for, of that discussion. For, too. for all of you people out there who are like, they should bring in a 1v1, three dribbles max. Listen, listen. If you're Kevin Durant, right, and you're up there and you're like, man, I'd love to throw my hat in uh, into this ring of, of an already kind of like shaky public appeal because this is what it is. It's essentially an executions chamber if you're doing a 1v1 tournament. Mm-hmm. Because what if, what if Dennis Schroeder snatches the soul of one of the biggest superstars of the NBA? A, does that look good for the players' publicity? Does that look good for the league's kind of like enthusiastic approach to this? Is there is there any player who would love to on live television in front of checks notes nine point three million people according to the fifty four percent upvote in viewership? Is there anybody in the right mind who'd want to do that? And really, what could you dangle in front of a guy like Kevin Durant to make him want to join a 1v1 competition? That's exactly it. If you are an advocate for this 1v1 competition, go poll the top 100 players in the league, see how many of them even want to play. You know who's going to join it? Malachi Flynn, Peyton Pritchard, Spencer Dinwiddie. Like, you are going to get players who you go, "Uh, I don't want to watch them do this for an hour. Like, exactly. Mm-hmm. You you are creating the redundancy of your own wish. Now, I will say this. If the NBA, because they're already doing a G-Leaguers essential like game and Mac McLung in the dunk contest, open the door to some of these creative college guys to do a dunk contest. Join in. I know it's supposed to be the NBA dunk contest, but clearly there has to be some sort of wiggle room in terms of viewership and wanting me to watch it because there is just no creativity in terms of players who want to join the contest and who are willing to compete in the contest. Mac McLung could go back to back to back to back to back for the next five years, and I wouldn't bat an eye because his competition was Jacob Toppin, Jaime Hawkins Jr., and Jalen Brown. Like, I don't – I'm sorry. I'm not moved. I am. I have not moved an inch in terms of how much I care about that. Now, I know some of you out there are going to be like, um, but that's why the college has dunk contests. Okay, sure. Then if you're not going to get college players – that Olympic long jumper, bring his ass in there. I want to see him do some crazy shit. He's got a crazy vert. You saw the Celebrity All-Star game. Motherfucker was throwing down tomahawks like no tomorrow. Dude, make a celebrity dunk contest. Make a make a like a, a fun little G League thing where you're like Mac McLung and Kai Soto. I don't care. You can fix it so many ways. A 1v1 competition is just not going to happen. Stop complaining about it. Yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan of the bringing non-NBA players into the NBA dunk contest thing. Like, if if we don't need to bring in lethal shooter for the, to make the three-point contest interesting, we shouldn't need to bring in non-NBA players for the dunk contest. Like, it shouldn't be this hard to get some guys to to want to participate in this. I'm not, I can't really understand why the participation level has dropped off so much in recent years. Like the whole like effort in the all-star game itself thing, like makes total sense. We can have our complaints about it. It, It's totally understandable how it happened, how we got there. The dunk contest turning into this sort of sham of an event. I I don't really know why or how it happened, but we've gotten to a point now where 
yeah, we have Mac McClung, and that's cool. He's sort of an NBA player, kind of, if you squint and you know turn your head to the side. But Jalen Brown being like the only notable name to participate in the dunk contest in the last what five plus years, only like all star caliber player we've seen. I mean, it's it's a really horrible look for the NBA. And I don't I don't really know what the solution is, but yeah, the one v one tournament is not the solution because like you said, there's no reward out there that outweighs the the potential risk of participating in this tournament and losing. Like Kevin Durant, a million dollars, not really moving the guy. Um, some like fake trophy with some past NBA legends name attached to it that Adam Silver would give him if he won, not really moving him. You know what does move him? The idea of nine point three million people plus all of Twitter shitting on him if he were to lose to to anybody that's the thing is like you could kevin durant could play fantastic in this 1v1 tournament loses in the final by one point to paul george or something now for the rest of his career kd has that against him he's he'll never be better than paul george according to twitter it's just not it's not worth it for anyone involved not to mention the injury risks etc so that is never happening so if if we want to flash back to when i was talking about the the player jerseys the patches the shoes I have a couple more ideas to throw out there because if you remember, I already solved your problems, Adam Silver. So I'm going to continue solving them. <laughs> Here's what I would suggest going forward. So again, you get guys like Mac McClung, who, to my knowledge, you know, he might have an Anta uh, shoe, but to my knowledge, does not have a signature shoe. I mentioned before where you kind of give these guys, if you if you're the winner, you get to have your own like you know your Puma release line, your your Under Armour release line, or Here's another crazy idea because players are very motivated by, and this is going to sound terrible, by the ability to kind of make their presence or their image within social media and, and the public a little more pleasing. What better way to do that than by saying, you know, say for every 50 you get in a dunk contest, uh, the NBA chucks 500K towards a charity of your choice under your name, starts a foundation under your name as the winner, has your name attached to a um, nonprofit organization trophy going forward, an award that they might hand out at some G League tournament, an award that they might hand out for the G League MVP. Or better yet, here's what you do. If you're still kind of on the fence about, uh, you know, how do we get some of the bigger name guys to come in, you reach out to them about their foundations and you say, okay, you know, John Morant, you don't have uh, a fund or anything started. You don't have like a, you know, the LeBron James school of excellence, whatever the fuck is, is called. How about we work hand in hand with you for your participation in the dunk contest. We're going to start kind of rehabilitating your image in the media by starting the John Morant fund for every, you know, whatever amount of money that they want, whatever arbitrary amount of money they want to throw at it, you know, Morant's participation. And then you, you get some other guys who are like, Oh, if it's for a good cause, of course I'm going to come out and put on a good show. I think players care a lot more, more now than ever, like you said, about their public appearance. And if you have a way to directly positively impact that, whether it be through charitable donations, whether it be through, oh my God, did you see the sick PG limited edition colorway that they came out with after he won the dunk contest? Oh, did you see on the back of his jersey? He now has like the uh, the Vince Carter dunking over Miyashiaho in the, in the Olympics patch on his back. Like, you could do that and it would greatly impact the public appeal of some of these players and they would have more inclinedness to join the dunk contest. The three-point contest, I think you keep the Sabrina challenge, obviously. That's such a good like you could you could from now to the end of time 
have a 44 year old Curry go against whatever shooter in the world you want. And I'd still tune into that just for the sheer, like factor of he still got it kind of thing. I don't like how it's basically a big ad though, with that weird LCD RGB LGBTQ plus uh, backboard and, and court that they got going on. Mm-hmm. Like you saw that on TV, right? Yeah, like yeah, how yeah. ridiculous it was like mountain Dew energy burst monster buy our product and it's like i don't care dude like, yeah it was a little bit shoved in her face um also for the record vince carter jumped over one frederick weiss Sorry, i don't know just... where i pulled that name from i just just like i was just like oh yeah um but you know, you know what i mean like like have a silhouette of that on yeah the I, I think those those type of incentives are definitely more likely to get this the star talent to participate i will say though speaking of charitable donations the nba got rid of this year for one, they got rid of the target score in the All-Star game, which is stupid. But they also got rid of the charitable donations thing for like who, which team won each quarter, yeah. which I thought was stupid. Like, why why are we deducing the donation amounts? Like, that's that's a horrible look for the NBA. If if you told Nikola Jokic that 20000 less dollars were going to uh, injured horses in Siberia next year, <laughs> become like a target. Might not even he'd, be like, he'd be like, boys, we need to score. 175 in second quarter otherwise i i don't think this is worth it like <laughs> nba if if you are going to direct funds into something something that the players and this is this is funny because you would not expect this or may you may, you might expect this but both dwayne wade at the time of his last also appearance and kevin durant are both saying that one of the key driving factors for you know getting to a, a certain amount of points or trying to play hard in the fourth quarter was because they know extra money goes to a charity. Why would you get rid of an incentive that some of the best players are like, oh, dude, that puts 10,000 more meals in kids' mouths? Of course I'll go for 40. Like, like of right. course. Like, why would I? I get it. Some players dog it. Some players are like, oh, this is a nice break. But if you told Cat that his 50-point game put, you know, 500 new Chromebooks to kids in like uh you know, sort of low income housing area for school th- that would have like direct impact on how players try to mm-hmm. go for points like that. Like, yeah, really bad look for them. Why take to, away money? Yeah. Really bad look for them to take away the donations that they had already had in the past. Um, Yeah. I think, I think the conclusion here is that a lot of the, the whining and the hand wringing about all-star weekend, I think is a little bit overblown, but it's clear that, you know, there are some effort issues, and I think about like the skills challenge, like how many times did you see a guy go through the obstacle course in the wrong direction or now, just not on. not really understand exactly what it was he was supposed to do? When you That's- say a guy, I think you mean Scotty Barnes. Well, Scotty because- Barnes did it. Um, I, I think Trey Young did it. It happened multiple times where they Anthony went the wrong Edwards direction. Anthony Edwards fucked up three Anthony times. Edwards, yeah, it was, it was yeah. bad. Not um, to mention the obstacles, like that that ring that they had to throw the, the pass through. Was as uh, as big as uh, like I don't know. It was the easiest obstacles I've ever seen. It was a joke. I used to love the skills challenge, but now it's 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 gone completely in the wrong direction. But um, con- the point being, like, I think some of the complaining is overblown because ultimately, like I said, like it could be the four best players in the league in the dunk contest, people would still complain. But it's clear that like there needs to be an understanding from the players that this is important. Like this is something that you know, represents the league. This is a big moment for the NBA. Like it's, I kind of actually didn't realize this until someone else pointed out to me. Like it's, it's right after the Super Bowl, And it's for those people, like the casual basketball fan, who's way more focused on the NFL or other sports. Like this is like the weekend for Adam Silver and the NBA to like showcase themselves. 
um, to fans who don't normally tune in and to potentially and steal viewership from exactly exactly and what they're doing what they're doing instead is is basically showcasing like hey this is not really something worth tuning in because guess what after all the festivities were over because we were supposed to record this past monday and i had some other obligations but sunday night after all the festivities were over i went to youtube the nba youtube account had every single event posted like the full video of it I spent about 30 to 35 minutes watching all of those videos. I got the entire All-Star Weekend experience in those 35 minutes. I didn't really need to, to tune in live. And that's really a bad look for the NBA because the whole point is that this is supposed to be an opportunity for them to, like you said, steal viewership. So changes definitely need to be made just from, just from the ground up with, with how much people care about putting on a good show. Because I, a lot of people are assuming, you know, we're going to get this new TV deal. Salary cap's going to double. It's going to triple. And it might, but like Mark Cuban said, he, he's not worried about this TV contract. He's worried about the next one, you know, because I'm sure Adam Silver will do just fine getting uh, getting ESPN and TNT and Amazon to, to sign this year yeah, or next year whenever it comes around. There will be no shortage around, of funds going into There won't be like, this time around, but I'm telling you, we're heading in the wrong direction when it comes to NBA viewership. And it, it, there's going to be a reckoning. That's all I'm going to say. But it's many years away, so no one really cares. But. Let's let's move to uh let's move to the to the real regular season of basketball. Uh, there are five key storylines that I think are going to be important to watch for the rest of this regular season and heading into the playoffs. Um, these are the things that I'm going to be keeping an eye on when it comes to just night to night NBA watching. Just the things I think are most important to keep track of. And uh, Mitch, actually, you have uh, the first one for us here. Okay, well. In terms of see, I'm I'm a bit of a stickler because I'm what's known as a hypocrite in this instance. But the main first storyline uh to kind of go with is first of all, we got Damian Lillard, who for all intents and purposes, we know how much of a great player he is. We know he's an all-time great. I think you can agree with that sentiment that he's an all-time great. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think he should have been on NBA 75 when they released that list, but besides the point, he's a great player. Mitch doesn't Anyways, like that take. With that, Anyways. With, that, with that take, it does beg the question because he has looked like a shell of himself that we've seen in a Milwaukee uniform. Which version of the top 75 NBA player of all time, this legend, are we going to be getting for the rest of his career? And matter of fact, which version of Dame is going to be kind of going out? Are we going to see, you know, that peak hitting that 35-footer on Paul George in the playoffs kind of Dame? Or are we about to see a very a very humbled version of Dame? Are we about to see a version of Dame that looks hobbled in comparison to the years prior? And I think the main concern here is, is Milwaukee going to survive on 65% of Portland Damian Lillard? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think that's one of the biggest storylines um, for like heading into the playoffs because – if we get, you know, Portland version of Dame or at least some sort of similar version of that, the Bucks definitely have to be taken seriously at that point as a team that can, you know, take down Boston, represent the East in the finals and win the whole thing. At the same time, on the other hand, if, if we continue to get this version of Damian Lillard uh, that we've seen for large stretches in Milwaukee, would it absolutely shock you if they end up in a 4-5 matchup and get bounced in the first round? I think it's it's definitely possible. You know, there's there's a world in which they get caught. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely something I'm gonna be paying very close attention to. You know, what version of Dame are we gonna get the rest of the way? Because you think like 
even just last year, I know obviously with the numbers, like things have been going up and up and up, but statistically you could make a very good case that last season in Portland was Dame's best season of his career. So for him to go from that to well, arguably two seasons, two seasons ago, like I would say like between, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like the 32 was probably like peak, but like they got like, it, it frustrates me because like Dame's like 2018, 19 and 20 run where it was like 30. 20, that was his actual peak. I like, agree. Like I, I think his best individual season would be like the last season with Portland. Yeah. But like in terms of his like actual, like, holy shit, like, yeah, all NBA Dame, like yeah, winning yeah. games, winning playoff series. It was like that cluster of years. But you're I right, agree. that echelon of Dame just doesn't exist in a Milwaukee mm-hmm. uniform. And I, it's the fear that he used to strike into people going downhill right. to be like, oh my God, is he going to pull it from 35 feet or is he going to dunk over four people? That's not happening. Anymore. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot look at me. And I under like, like you said, the trajectory is like, like this kind of like wiggling upward, like a little worm when it rains and going up in the dirt, but it's not 30 a game. It's not seven assists. It's not crazy shooting splits. Nothing about that. Like to put it into perspective, Dame last year, 38%, 11 threes a game. He's down a, a whole 4% everywhere. Like he, he's efficiently wise, dropped everywhere, scoring less, assisting on less, rebounding less. The marquee picture is for a guy who people praised constantly as being, you know, he's Portland's heart and soul, but it doesn't really matter where he goes because like he, like he will be the same everywhere. The proof is not in the pudding at the moment. The proof is, is that Dame was putting up monster numbers on a team that was on the downward spiral. And now we're seeing a human mortal version of the same player. And I think a lot of people are taken aback by the fact that he's not putting up a monster stat line every night. And, right. and people are, are, are kind of, they're disappointed in the, for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Here's, here's what's most telling to me when you, when you look at last year's name versus this season, um, last year, 57 and a half percent from two point range this year, he's down to 50. It's a huge drop. So could it just be that he's now 33 years old instead of 32 years old? Maybe that 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 is potentially a concern, because if if we're starting to see the athleticism go and he's just not able to finish inside the way that he was before, as well as the shot just not falling at the same clip that it has in, in previous years, like we're going to see a pretty quick drop off from Dame is my point here, if that's what's happening. Because, I mean, obviously it's natural for point guards as they age into their 30s to lose their athleticism. And generally that's when you see the shooting ability start to rise and rise as they um, age into their 30s, at least for the guys that sustain their careers. Um, but Dame, obviously, like we said, he's, he's dropped almost 4% from the three-point line. So if he's going to lose both of those essentially at the same time, then there's really no hope for him because obviously we know the sort of value he brings on defense. So, yeah, it, it's a huge difference between um, the Dame that we're we're accustomed to seeing versus what we've we've gotten in the um, the 51 games he's played this season. So if he's able to turn it back around the next 30, the Bucks are dangerous, man. Like I, I really think we've been sort of just dismissing them for most of the season because it's just felt off and Dame just hasn't been himself and they fired the coach and just the vibes have been off from day one. But through all of that, there's still been a very good team. Like they still have some impressive wins on the resume. They're still one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference standings. And obviously, 
you know, we know what Giannis is capable of. So if Dame is able to get back to his level, the Bucks need to be taken seriously. But it's just such a wide range of potential outcomes based on this one player. Like if you if you 2K sim to the lineup of Dame, Malik Beasley, Middleton, Giannis, and Lopez, that team would win 70 games. Like in a, in a hypothetical universe, if, if you just took like last year's Dame, popped mm-hmm. him on this roster, and then ran that simulation – they would run through, and I love your Celtics. Love, love what your boys are doing. But that that hypothetical team would run through the Celtics. It would. I'm, run no, I'm absolutely in agreement like, with you. And that that's really that's really what I'm saying. That's why I feel like it's it's the biggest storyline to watch the rest of the way because the Bucks could go from being the best team in the East, best team in the league without question, if they're at their highest level and everyone's healthy and Dame's rolling. To I genuinely could see them losing in the first round in a four or five matchup if things really shook out, shook out the right way. Now it, things would have to go exactly right with seating and they'd have to really get screwed matchup wise or whatever, but it's possible. Like I'm, I'm by no means ruling out that they give you a first round exit. So just a huge range of outcomes and it's primarily weighing on the shoulders of Damian Lillard. I will, I will mention, you know, things like the health of Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton kind of just slowly just devolving into, uh, whatever he's become those really, are concerns it's, it's, too it's but what health do they have at this point like right. it's, it's the point of like like are you gonna have to run out Danilo Gallinari at the three now because Middleton's like not gonna be healthy here's here's my main takeaway and if you wanted to quantify peaks and valleys you would look at this Bucks team you would mm-hmm. say you would say at their peak Dame is waving goodbye to Jamal Murray in seven games in the finals and at their valley, which is they've looked more closely at the valley, they're begging for the Knicks not to sweep them in the first round. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of like wishy washiness that I've seen out of this Bucks kind of like inconsistencies has riddled them and, and injuries have riddled them this entire season. And I still see Bucks fans and I'm not going to quote which Bucks fans because there's one that we used to know, but I still see Bucks fans say, oh, they're still just feeling it out. Brother, it's 51 games in your feet. Your feel out period is over. Yeah. You're, you're yeah, reeling down the head the of a 20. Exactly. Out. You're looking at your last 25 games and you're looking like, oh, we're still figuring it out. Dude, the- <laughs> there is no time to figure anything out. You know, if you were if you were the Celtics and you had a comfortable first seed lead, start you know, fuck it. You wanted to experiment a little bit, go ahead. You got you got the time to. But right. Milwaukee, you do not have time to experiment on anything. You have you had this weekend to to rest up, and now you're going into a stretch of oh boy, I really hope Malik Beasley's jump shot comes back to what it used to be. Oh boy, I really, really hope Pat Bev is the backup that solves our problems. Oh boy, I really, really, really hope Gallinari gets healthy and we can actually use his depth going forward. Like, that's your hope. And if you're still, you know, relying on Doc Rivers to be the uh, the the kind of like zeitgeist, if you're still uh, like trying to figure out, oh, we're the third seed, but we could very much as well be the first or the fifth. Your team does not have a grace period like some other teams do. You're you're staring down the end of a loaded bread. This is that shotgun roulette game, and the dude has taken out all the empty shells, cut off the barrel, and has handcuffed you to the table. And the barrel's like this. It's pointed right at you, and you have one life left. So you better hope to God that you figure this out. Wow, that's pretty serious, man. Um, it is. Yeah, it, it it's now's the time for the Bucks to really start figuring some things out. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know if Doc Rivers is the guy to do it, but we will see. Shout out to the Bucks. I got a uh, Kinder Egg the other day, and it came with this little uh, Bucks mascot thing, which reminds me that I should mention 
that this is the final episode of the Hoop Journal podcast that will not be on video because I finally pulled the trigger and bought myself a laptop. So with that in mind, it's getting here on Monday. So we will record at some time next week and I will have Mitch is doing the thing. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of it when, when, when uh, we start going to video. <laughs> anyway, the next episode of the Hoop Journal podcast will be available on YouTube with video. So that's exciting. We'll also be uh, posting clips on TikTok. So with that being said, uh, yeah, the Bucks have a very wide range of outcomes for the season, and it primarily uh, depends on which version of Dame we're going to get. So let's move to our next one. We're going to take a quick break, but we have four more key storylines to get to. Okay, so one of the other marquee storylines that I think is kind of one that's been a little bit swept under the rug just because of like the season that they had starting was really are A, the Dallas Mavericks, legitimate title contenders? Are they just a scrappy team in the West or can they actually go all the way? And B, like a second part to that, is Luka a legitimate MVP candidate? The main kind of storyline there was the Mavericks looked kind of shaky. I'd say shaky at best to start mm-hmm. the season that came out of the gate. And post-trade deadline, they look like an entirely different team. Like, I, I don't think people understand just how, I guess, of a non-factor uh, Grant Williams was, like, after the first three games. Mm-hmm. Grant Williams was a, um, how should I put this, a ghost of his Boston Celtics days on the Mavericks. And to basically go from... You know, rolling up a lineup of like Luca, Dante Exum, Tim Hardaway Jr., Josh Green, and like Lively to now rolling up a lineup of like Luca, Kyrie, PJ Washington, Daniel Gafford, Tim Hardaway Jr., Josh Green. Like, yeah, they got way more options now. Right. It makes way more sense, this team. Yeah. I love this Mavericks lineup, but I, I love more about kind of. And I don't know how much of a, a Luca fanatic you are nowadays. I know beforehand you were you were with the wave of potential MVP. I'm now on the wave of he actually has like a swinging distance kind of shot at mm-hmm. winning the MVP. I would say that the Mavericks being contenders and Luca being an MVP contender go hand in hand because in order for Luca to have a legit shot at MVP, the Mavs are going to have to rise themselves up in the standings. Uh, they stand at six right now. They're winners of the last seven games, which I believe is tied for the longest win streak in the league with the Celtics uh, active. So, yeah, definitely turning things around since they added uh, Gafford and P.J. Washington. I will say like Gafford's been fantastic. He's looked about as good as you could have expected and then some since he got to yeah, Dallas. P.J., I feel like he's been okay. He's been fine. He really has just like taken up the Grant Williams minutes, who, like you said, has been horrible. So, like, that's really the boost that they're getting from from that trade. And, I mean, meanwhile, I should mention Grant Williams is playing well for the Hornets. They're 4-0 since he got there. So, a win-win trade, if I do say so myself there. Um, but, yeah, the Mavs, I think, would have to be um, a team that we take seriously as a contender in order for the voters to take Luka seriously as an MVP candidate. Because given the candidates that we have, I think it's it's pretty clear Jokic and SGA are the, are the front runners. They are leading teams that we all feel like have legit championship aspirations. You know, OKC is going to be the one or the two seed. Obviously, the Nuggets are the reigning champs. So I I think that Luka would have to elevate his team into contender status in order for him to be taken seriously as um, someone who could win MVP. I think without a doubt, he's going to be on every single person's ballot in that top five. But it's hard to give a player the most valuable player award if they're not playing on a team that we feel like is one of the best in the league you know obviously we have russ's triple double season that was an anomaly to say the least 
so yeah, I, I think if, if the Mavs keep playing the way that they have as of late, um, he'll definitely elevate himself into that conversation, but it's still something that I think has to happen. True. So here's here's my thing. If the Mavericks creep past, so here's how I and this is this is a crazy projection, and you're gonna hate me for this one, but this is how I think the season ends. I think I think OKC usurps Minnesota as the one seed. Mm-hmm. I think it goes OKC, Mini, Denver. Dallas clips fall to number five. I think this hot streak is okay. Kind of the Clippers are currently up four games on the Mavs. So that's the gap. Um, and the Pelicans are actually one game ahead of the Mavs. They're in fifth right now, so they would have to pass two teams to get to four. Yeah, I think first of all that's super doable. I don't foresee a team like the Lakers kind of jumping Sacramento or Phoenix. So I think what happens is it's pretty much a shuffle between the top six. I think the Pelicans probably fall to six. I think that's like just how it trickles out in terms mm-hmm. of strength of schedule. Um, I do want to point it out that uh, for it kind of like how it's um, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx this in any way. Um, but for like what Luke is doing currently, the 35 a game is, is kind of just nuts in my opinion. Like I, I don't want to like downplay because they're the sixth seed, but like just kind of like, what he's doing in terms of like, you know, started off the season was just like, oh, nice. Like putting up 38 a game in December. Cool. Mm-hmm. But then you're winning no games. Now that he's putting up like the same numbers and winning games, people are like, oh, 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 like this yeah. this guy actually could be an MVP. So I, you know, to, to each their own, obviously, with how you, you weigh it. Because obviously, you know, Jokic putting up a triple-double last night, shooting 100% from the field. You know, you, you got you to gotta look at that and be like, damn, white boy, go, white boy, go, white boy, go, white boy. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's still stuff like that where you're like, I think if if, if you look at it from like a, a non-biased standpoint, yeah, I think Jokic is still going to lead the MVP race. But the fact that Luka is making a case for it after everybody kind of wrote off the Mavs, I think it's like a nice, like feel yeah. good moment, especially because, like you said, Gafford's looked fantastic. Luca has plugged him into that better than just a lob catcher role. I think Gafford's going to just continue to eat, and the more comfortable mm-hmm. he gets no in the situation, yep. Um, I still would like to see an upgrade from Josh Green on the wing. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, harp on him, but like with how inconsistent Tim Hardaway Jr. is, with right. how weird you've got kind of like backup wing situation and like Derek Jones Jr. What else can the Mavericks possibly do? Because I think they like this. This deadline was unequivocally one of the best ones that they could have had. So it's like, what else does this? You know, if they don't, if they don't go on to to the Western Conference Finals, what is that move in the offseason? Yeah, it probably is a Josh Green upgrade, and I agree with you. They had about as good of a uh, of a trade deadline as you could have asked for. Um, I would say, yeah, the Josh Green spot moving forward is probably the upgrade. Um, I want to say that you know I've been sort of hesitant to jump on the Luka bandwagon you know he's been the preseason favorite for MVP multiple times now already in his career and I've sort of pushed back on that I've always felt like that that sort of case was not really there but this season what he's been able to do is is it's a different level from what we've seen in the past from Luka um, primarily the, the difference that I've noticed is his efficiency shooting the ball he's been a guy that always takes a lot of threes but has not necessarily been the most efficient very similar to like a Trey Young type of guy like we think of Trey Young as a shooter but the percentages aren't actually there Luca's up to 38% from three this year on a career high over 10 attempts a game like this is his most efficient season as a scorer of his NBA career and that's you know he's spot. isn't he also only one rebound away from a triple double 
He it's is like, currently he's currently averaging thirty four point three points, eight point eight rebounds, nine point six assists. So he's yeah, he's so very close. Yeah, he's he's, very he's close. right there. Um, and I I'll say like because I'm not the biggest Luca fan. I think like you know I I made a case that you didn't like, but I I made a case that SGA was the better player. <sighs> I think that's a hot take, one that you know not many people agree with. So that being said, like I'm not I'm not the highest on Luca, but I have to admit that. All things being equal, like team success and everything to the side for a second, I think Luka is having the best season of any player in the NBA right now. Like just the, the production, I think, is just better than what we've seen from anyone else. Um, obviously, that's not the only way that you determine MVP, but it is sort of the, like probably the number one driving factor is just like how good are you playing? And I think yeah. that Luka is probably having the best season of anyone in the NBA right now. So I, I will give him props for that. He's been He's been fantastic. And I know I've said a lot as far as, you know, my, my distaste with his uh, his effort on the defensive end. And I know there's a lot of numbers out there that suggest otherwise, you know, like isolation numbers and, and post-up numbers, things like that, albeit on like 32 possessions. But there are some numbers that suggest that Luca um, is actually having the best defensive season of his career. Um, it's not what my eyeballs are telling me from when I watch the Mavs, but um, I, I do have to give some respect to the numbers. So Luca, point being, is having a fantastic season, an MVP-worthy season. And I would say that as long as the Mavs continue on the streak, you know, they start to move themselves up into the standings. If they do, like you said, catch the Clippers, Luka is absolutely going to be in my top three, if not number one for MVP. Yeah. I mean, like if you just kind of like a general point. So he's he's going to lead the NBA in, in points per game. Like that's just it's he's, yeah, it, the, it the closest clear, person yeah. to catch him would be Shea. And he's another like three points behind him. Yeah, uh, he's going to finish top five in the assists. He's going to be like weirdly and this one i don't understand he's going to be both in the top five for three pointers made and just outside of like per volume and percentages like if you adjusted with volume because he's taking some of the most like period um i don't know how like so he this was the year he scored 73 he's going to go down as the points leader the highest like score in a game it's it's such a weird vision for me to think Man, like this, this Denver lineup is still like it could still have another piece added to it and like explode past that. I think the fallacy of Luca doesn't elevate because remember there was like this kind of idea where like Luca was very much a a heliocentric player that you really needed specific pieces around him, and they added Kyrie Irving and people were like, oh great, a heliocentric player who needs other pieces around him, like that's gonna work, and it has, mm-hmm. and. I think the fallacy of Luca being James Harden-esque where he is the system and everybody else is going to have to take a back seat. I think that fallacy has kind of disappeared a little bit right. where Luca is able to both a make, make system players better and transition star players to play beside him. Like he, he may eat up a lot of the usage rate and time on the ball, but he also is in terms of, he's not like an assist hunter that I think yeah. Trey Young is in the same right, way. Right, 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 right. Luca sees the chess game in front of him collapse and then makes the pass. Um, remember when we talked about Halley kind of being like, you know, shovel pass, shovel pass, feed me these 12 assists a game kind of thing. Yes. I think Luca Luca shares the inkling of a um if if you were to call one of them Steve Nash versus Jason Kidd, I think he's got much more of that like archetype of, you know, these assists are happening in the flow of the game. Right. And Luca's putting up 35 a game. Mm-hmm. Like I think yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic point. Yeah, it's not nearly like as systematic as like a prime James Harden, where 
yeah, like you said, like he he dominated everything and everything happened as a result of him. Like Luca definitely plays within the flow. Like he's dominating the ball, obviously, because he's the best player on the court. But yeah, he, he he's not um, manufacturing assists in the same way that like, yeah, like a James Harden or, or Trey Young or, or Halliburton will see from time to time. So yeah, it, it's it's been great. Like he's he's really sort of answering all the questions. Like obviously he came into the league right away and was one of the best players, but had sort of his flaws. And as time goes on, he's he's really starting to to chip at those. Yeah, I really, I really like that people are are now kind of changing the way that they have labeled him at first because I like you, you can you can flash this back to as far as the twenty nineteen to twenty season. So it was his second year. Uh, you know, he was top five in the MVP MVP voting. He was all all NBA first. Like like that version of Luca right after his rookie year, where people were like, oh, like the system works. Like mm-hmm. like the idea of like Luca having pieces around him. He doesn't really care about the pieces. Now, I think what you're seeing right now is a version of Luca where, so still 24. Remember how people were like, oh, he's going to plateau. Oh, he's going to plateau. Oh, he's going to plateau. I think this is the version of Luca where he can comfortably put up 30 plus a game and lead to wins. It just depends on a, the health of his team and kind of how everybody else slots into those spots. I think Gafford is the perfect role man for him. Yeah, no doubt. I like Lively as a lob catcher, but Gafford in terms of a playoff setting. Yeah, Gafford's is... a little more ready for that role. Yeah. Yeah. So what what I think, and, and this this might be like a little bit of like a stretch. I think if the Mavs make another move for the wing, that would be the year Luca actually wins MVP. I think I'm writing off this season as finishes top three or top two in the vote, doesn't win it. Fair. Yeah, because I do think those four games in order to catch the Clippers, I think that's it's a pretty tall task. Like the Clippers are, are still playing very well. If he does it, like I said, I think he could. He has a shot at it, but yeah, it could. It could be next year. You know, we'll see what they do in the off season. Yeah, if they're able to get a Josh Green upgrade, get someone else who doesn't have to be like the flamethrower that Tim Hardaway Jr. is, but someone who's just more consistent. Because like you said, Tim Hardaway Jr. is very up and down. You never know what you're getting from him night to night. If they can find someone who's just consistent, solid uh, at that small forward spot. Yeah, that that could take the Mavs to another level, and then then Luca then Luca's firmly in the MVP conversation. Another big storyline that uh, I'm keeping an eye on uh, the over the next few weeks or so is when are we going to get the the Embiid update? Because I am of the mindset that he shouldn't play the rest of the season, but I would imagine that the Sixers are going to do everything they can to get him back out on the court and not feel like they're wasting a year of, of his career. But I do think the timing of when we get the announcement is going to be very telling. For example, if they come out with a reevaluation and they say um, he's definitely coming back, then I think that tells you a lot about how the Sixers feel about their current roster. Obviously, they haven't been playing well in his absence, so it doesn't really bode well for a potential return this season. But essentially what I'm trying to say is that whether or not they decide to bring him back for the regular season is going to be a telltale sign about how Daryl Morey actually feels about the roster at full strength. Because if they bring him back, then it means that they believe this current roster has a legit shot at a title. Otherwise, there would be no sense in, in playing him. So... I'm very curious to see what they decide to do with Embiid because I think it's sort of a precursor for just what sort of level of activity we'll see from them in the offseason. Because if he does play at all this season, I, I'm more leaning toward they won't make any big moves. If they very quickly in the next few weeks decide that they're going to shut him down for the rest of the season, that tells me they see some serious work that needs to be done with this roster. And at that point, I'm anticipating some major shakeups in free agency. I honestly... 
if I'm Daryl Morey and I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, so now our lineup's probably going to look like Maxi, Heal, Toby, whoever the fuck we're going to play at the four, and then Embiid. I think that lineup in a full season is fantastic. But I think that if you want to really, really throw all your chips on the fact that bringing Embiid back, risking him being injured again, wish, risking throwing out an entire season rather than the end of it, all for, like, no offense, the minuscule chance at a chip. Yeah, I think you got some crazy. I think you got some crazy delusions if you're Del Mar at that point. Mm-hmm. I expect a huge overhaul to like the not only the depth of this lineup in the offseason, but also the actual like wing position. I don't know if they bought in as Tobias Harris as like the answer to that. I don't know if they they want like another stretch four next to Embiid. Like, don't get me wrong. In terms of like like Buddy Heald in a Sixers jersey, I'm very pleasantly surprised at his ability to not only create, because he's always had the kind of like ability to put the ball on the floor and get a shot, but also to like kind of relocate with Maxi because it's, mm-hmm. it's been pretty seamless. Yeah. It's been pretty yeah, seamless. Yeah. So I, I do foresee a lot of like, kind of like, cause like I love me some Paul Reed minutes, but he is not going to be your full-time answer to anything. No. No. Um, so I do expect uh, a lot of like kind of like subtle shifts in this team. Like if if this Philly could have somehow, you know, got Bojan instead of the Knicks, that would have been pretty good. But like, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like we're like, no, you I'm kind of you, like yeah. hypothetically say, oh, OK, well, that ship has already sailed. Like, what do you do now? Just to let you know, Daryl Murray, your window for the 2024 free agency class has been closed for a while. So uh, none of those superstars, like unless you really want Clay Thompson, unless you really, really, really want Clay, I don't know what that moves, what the moves are in the offseason. I just know that they got to happen. It's a good take. Yeah, I, I don't I don't foresee Clay going anywhere. I mean, the, the piece that came out, I want to say via the ringer, if I'm not mistaken, but the piece that came out about Clay Thompson where he's sort of like, Accepting his new role and understanding that he has to, you know, sort of buy into the player that he is now, not the player that he was. Um, I, I think he's a Golden State lifer. So yeah, that that even further shrinks the the talent pool for the Sixers in free agency. I think you had mentioned last time that they might try to go all in on Paul George if, if he becomes available. That, like I said, is the type of addition that I think they might need because as much as I love Maxi, they definitely need like a real need a mover on the wing in order to to make a run in a championship. I don't know if the Paul George thing doesn't work out. I don't know who else could fill that role, but yeah, I definitely feel like taking a swing on the wing is is where they need to to improve this offseason. And yeah, going back to the Embiid piece of it, like I, it seems to me it would be without question the only reasonable decision to not bring Embiid back. Like there's no justification for why he should be playing this season in my opinion, but it does not feel that way in terms of, you know, how the Sixers are approaching it because at no point have they mentioned that he'd be out for the season, that this is a potential season-ending injury. It's all, well, he'll be reevaluated. You know, we'll we'll see what it's like in a couple weeks, whatever. So it feels like they're going to try and push him back. It feels like he probably will want to try and push himself back, but there's no like legitimate justification for why they should do that, in my opinion. I want to move to my next storyline. Um, the last one that I have about the NBA here. What I'm really focused on, because this was a couple weeks ago, something that wasn't on my radar whatsoever, but it's the Golden State Warriors. More specifically, I'm very keyed in on 
how they are going to handle the non-Steph Curry minutes. Uh, because obviously, when Steph Curry's on the floor, things things are just fine. You know, the Warriors have, for a decade now, uh, made things work when he's on the court. But without him, can they survive those minutes and get to a place where for 48 minutes they're playing competitive basketball? And can more like in the larger picture, can they get uh, back into the playoff race and be taken seriously uh, as a team when we get to the playoffs? Because, like I said, two weeks ago, not something I thought about at all. I thought the Warriors were done. I thought it was over. We had our 10 playoff teams in the West, and that was that. Obviously, the Jazz being sellers at the trade deadline opened up an opportunity for the Warriors, and they're taking full advantage. Um, I don't know if it's because of that or it has probably more to do with Draymond coming back from his suspension, but they've been playing really well as of late, um, really turning things around and looking like the team that they were before. But the one concern that I have in order, or in terms of them being able to sustain this is managing the non-Steph Curry minutes. That's, that's sort of always been... And it is with a lot of teams that have one great player. It's sort of just like the biggest uh, concern when it comes to a playoff series. It's just, can they survive without him on the court? So first of all, I want to ask you, what what have you seen recently from the Warriors besides just Draymond coming back that you think has led to them playing so well as of late eight, eight and two in their last 10? I mean, obviously like the immediate thing is that in terms of, like I'm, I'm not going to point to Draymond because Draymond is a is a connective tissue guy who is who has come back and been fantastic. Like don't get me wrong, he has actually been providing numbers. But I think it's I think it's the the trust in Kaminga Podzimski, like the idea that Steve Kerr has finally been like, oh, okay, these other guys are going to actually contribute. Okay, I got to stop holding on to Clay for 40 minutes a game. Okay, I have guys who are on the bench ready and willing to to actually step up and play NBA minutes. So Kaminga, who, and I'll say this with my chest here, he has been the second best player for the Warriors wholeheartedly. He, I, yeah, I think if, if you factor in the number of games Draymond has missed, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I even like I'm I'm going to say this brazenly that. Kaminga's like surgeons to becoming like that second option as a scorer and ball handler and actually like a defensive rotating wing has been equally important, if not more so than Draymond coming back, because mm-hmm. you have basically been dependent on if Clay can figure it out night in and night out and catch fire here and there, then yeah, you win games. But when he's not, Wiggins has still looked like a shell of himself. I don't know. It like, if you look at the last 10, it has been like the same thing. 13 points. He's putting up an assist, four boards. He's shooting better, but it it's not attributing to actual success. So I don't understand where, like Wiggins, when are you going to turn the corner? And is it too late for him to turn that mm-hmm. corner again? I, I just, yeah. it's it's really weird to see. But Kaminga is stepping up. Uh, Podzimski is like actually, like, like. Brandon Pod is weird to me because I didn't think that he would get as like he started 20 or 15 games now. I didn't think Kerr would be so quick to be like, okay. Right. Here, like, here's the reins, like, like do whatever you want to do, figure it out. And he has like figured it out. So um, you know, I, I like the idea. Like, so Chris Paul has been an interesting wrinkle. Um, you know, still putting up an insane six to one or six point one assist to turnover ratio. Uh, Sarek and Moody have been cool, but I don't think that they're giving Moody enough run to like actually be like, yeah, you, you've been on that player. wagon all season about Moody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, like they're actually using their depth. And I think that's the big thing is like, he's Kerr has finally been like, okay, all right. Like I, I, right. I need to start giving these guys runs. Otherwise I'm not going to get anything out of them 
next season or right, they're going right, to just right. be gone next season anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you mentioned Kaminga first. That's definitely been the biggest glaring difference to me. Uh, just like the expansion of his role to where now like he's creating a lot more offense. They're letting him attack and just really like filling in for what they were, I think, expecting from Wiggins. You know, obviously he had a really rough start to the season. He's picked it up a bit as of late, I would say, um, starting to show like from time to time that he can still be that guy. But um, Kaminga has definitely come in and filled that role. And I think the whole pods thing, like Kerr moving him to the starting lineup was really out of necessity more than anything else with the way Clay had been playing. So uh, the fact that they were able to make that transition as seamlessly as they did, um, I think it's been huge for them. But yeah, the Kuminga thing for me um, has been it's been really impressive because when he first came into the league, I had a lot of hopes for him. And then he was much more of a project maybe than I realized after watching him play some NBA minutes. Um, and I sort of not, not you know, completely sold my stock on him and was out on him, but definitely didn't really have that same sort of belief in him as like a, a potential star type of guy, a 20 plus point per game sort of player. And that's exactly what he's been uh, over the past month plus. So um, definitely he's helping uh, change the, tra- the trajectory for this Warriors season. Do you do you buy them? Maybe not even as contenders, but I'll put it like this. Do you do you see them winning a playoff series? Uh, I I mean, like they could beat the Lakers, I think. But OK, I think- not the play in game. I'm talking about an actual seven game series. Uh, not really like there, there's there's two matchups that I think actually make sense if they were to to like play. Um, I think the Pelicans would be a team that they could actually like, like run the floor on. Right. And I think the Suns would be another instance where mm-hmm. Chris Paul has like a revenge series, but they're not beating the wolves. They're not beating OKC. They're definitely not beating the Clippers or the Nuggets. Like they could take a game off of each of those teams, but I'll say this right now. OKC is they, they do not like, if you, if you really want to sit here and be like, Oh Yeah. Draymond is going to be fine just roaming against Chet and like locking everything up there. The fact that Warriors do not have enough weapons to throw at Shea, mm. J Dub, and Chet. At like, all. like, yeah. OKC is taking Golden State out. Sorry, Darnell Williams, 44. That's not happening. Um, they the Wolves, I don't really feel like, and I know this is going to be a little disrespectful to Kaminga, but I don't really feel like I would want him 35 plus minutes ant isolation guarding like yeah. like ant edwards turning into the next gear that's going to be hard to deal with the clippers are funny because i i kind of well, hold don't... on let me let me stop real quick the timberwolves they're an interesting one because logically there's no reason to think that the warriors would beat them in a series but just knowing what we know about both teams would it shock you if the warriors push the timberwolves to a game seven where really anything could happen like if they you know if if they push them to a game seven, it's because three league reports came out that there was like five missed fouls from Draymond on Cat. Like yeah, exactly. that's what I mean. Like, like, like for But for... I don't know, Cat and Rudy Gobert against Steph Curry in a playoff series, it would not shock me if Steph Curry comes out on top, is all I'm saying. That's my issue, is that we've seen what happens when it's just Steph. Like that's, that's like yeah. I yeah, yeah, yeah. and and here's here's my other thing. And not not to be the bearer of bad news for Warriors fans, but you know, as much as you want to be like, oh, we're going to spam switches till cats on Curry uh, on uh, on defense. It's like, cool. Uh, the moment you drive within five feet of the basket, yeah. your shot's getting swallowed the fuck up. You got so, the stifle tower waiting for you. Yeah, that yeah. is, that so is like, a fair point. Yeah. And my main thing is, is like, if you're going to be dependent on Wiggins to pour in 25 a night to beat the Wolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, going back to my original point about managing the non-stuff minutes, uh, the, the Chris Paul, like you said, the Chris Paul experiment has been interesting. I think if he can stay healthy, which is obviously a huge question mark, 
they can they can be just fine. Um, the combination of him and Pods handling the ball when Steph Curry's off the floor, I think, can get the job done, so to speak. But yeah, like you said, like OKC, no chance. They're getting they're getting wiped by OKC. I will admit, but I do think that they they do present a matchup problem for a lot of the teams in the West, like the Timberwolves, who you know are are pretty slow footed in the front court, um, and don't exactly have a Steph Curry stopper on their roster either. So That's I, I, I think mean. they're. They, they... They present a matchup issue for 29 teams in the NBA. The issue is they have a wing who went from an all-star starter to chipping in barely 14 points a game. They went from, you know, having, and I know how bad Jordan Poole has looked, but they've looked at, they've had moments where he sparks in 30 mm-hmm. without blinking right. and they don't have that anymore. Yeah. They don't have like this version of. We should Draymond. also mention Kevon Looney has not been the same this season. He, no. He's been, I don't want to say useless, but like, border on it he's yeah he's, he's, he's regressed and, yeah and draymond has regressed in terms of his defensive presence too so as much as i want to say oh yeah steph curry can torture you for 50 it's like congratulations when the rest of the team chimes in 30 collectively yeah sorry you're not winning games fair fair point fair point um i i do still take the warriors seriously as a team that like no one wants to see in the playoffs but um yeah i mean it, it would take you know, the run that they had in 2022, I think, was was pretty remarkable in terms of it not coming out of nowhere oh, yeah. necessarily, but being pretty unexpected. Like Wiggins' performance in, in those playoffs, specifically the finals, um, you know, a lot. My point being, a lot had to go right for them to win that year. A ton more would have to go right this year for them to yeah. make a run. But and the reason, I, I do still feel like they could beat anybody. The reason I don't bring up Dallas is because Kyrie Irving is employed by the Dallas Mavericks mm-hmm. and Steph Curry the the ptsd that has to go through his mind if Kyrie's closing a game on him i don't know do you still think he feels that he's won i mean he's won multiple championships since then oh he's won multiple championships but it's the same kind of instance where one of the biggest shots in nba history on the biggest stage of all time with the biggest storyline of all time in terms of professional sports still to this day it's valid that shot was hit in your mouth yeah if That's... that doesn't ripple you for the rest of your life, then you have the most stoic mentality I've ever seen. Yeah, Cause... that's valid. I mean, Dame hit a shot on PG in the All-Star game, and they immediately referenced the, the game winner. So yeah. if that one still sticks around, yeah, I guess you make a fair point. And he that's still fair. talks about it. He fair. still talks about it. So that's, that's what I mean. All right, let's move to your the final storyline that you're watching. You got, you got one that's sort of uh, not not on the NBA court, but on the court. So what do you have for our, uh, our final storyline here before we get out of here? So um, in terms of this NBA draft, uh, it's no secret that some of the two, I would say two of the top potential three prospects are both Frenchies. Mm-hmm. All right? They're both, they're both baguette eaters. And this, this one's really weird because almost everywhere you go, you see people kind of saying Alexander Saar is the better prospect if you're going to like develop him as a player, if you're a team that is not really concerned about winning at the moment, Alexander Saar is the best option for you to my, like my counter to that is I have seen some like really, really interesting flashes from LNB pro a zone, Zachary Richari, like French people in an instance of like, like imagine, imagine Wemby goes first and then Sar goes first and then next year another French person. All right, come on, we got to pump the brakes somehow. Yeah, all right, here like, we go. But as much as I want to take a guy like Topic number one, I, 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 I don't think that's feasible. I think the top two spots are Zachary and Alex. Here's my issue though. I think we discussed this a little earlier, where in terms of like just raw ceiling and like 
the ability to develop everything else outside of the bar or outside of the just, you know, defensive end. Sar is like the no brainer, mm-hmm. like the, the physical tools, the intangibles, the feel for the game, the hustle that he's displayed. Don't really like, like you could sit here all day and show me Zachary highlights and I'd still be like, yeah, but that Alexander Sar guy with the, with the freakish wingspan, right. with the raw physical intangibles. Yeah. Cause this is the other thing. If you look at it like strictly from a statistical standpoint, yes, okay, Zachary's shooting a blazing 47%. He's like scoring at a decent clip. He's showed shades of like that Michael Porter Jr. kind of wiggle. But at the same time, it's like it's like you're you're six eight without like the crazy like uh, like he doesn't have like a seven foot three wingspan. He doesn't have like the crazy roaming positional versatility that Star does. Mm-hmm. He's not like like a crazy half court creator either. Like if you, if you watched some of the games where he makes like some of the most shots, they're relocation and off the catch shots. They're not, he's not pounding the ball up top and like taking his defender to the cup and being like, whatever. So why wouldn't you go with a guy with better physical intangibles who has shown that he could, this is the craziest part to me that as a rim runner, SARS like just clinically underrated. Like he does not shy away from contact the same way other players in this draft do. Like yeah. you could you could come to me and be like, oh yeah, but um, you know, Cody Williams and Buzelis and like like those guys are other are, are great rim runners. That's like some of them are afraid of their left hand. Some of them are afraid to to take it into the teeth of the defense. And Sar's not. I get that he's super raw on offense though, because like he, he's he's gonna be pretty much a non-shooter when he yeah. comes into yeah, the league. Yeah. It's gonna be like a like a really like rough like it's kind of like that Mobley start where you're like he's shown signs of having a jumper they just haven't like calculated into percentages yet right and it's very possible that they they can but I think if you if you look at it like this like if you do like the the ringer shades of with pieces of if you yep. look at would you rather have a Michael Porter Jr. who is not inclined to play make and probably will never be inclined to play make or Jonathan Isaac Light or Jaron Jackson or Jonathan Isaac Isaac Plus and Jaron Jackson Jr. Light, who could develop a jumper, who's also willing to switch onto the best like perimeter player. Like you yeah. really gotta think, right? Like, I think it's I think it's one of those years where it's gonna come down to fit. Obviously, I mean we're this late in the process and there's still nothing close to a consensus number one. I guess you no. could say SAR is like the closest thing to it. He probably gets brought up the most when you talk about number one pick, but very clearly not a consensus, so I think it will heavily come down to what the team that's picking number one actually needs. Um, if they need someone to sort of anchor the defense and you know help establish a new defensive identity, I think Sar is the guy because he's definitely the most defensive ready, like ready to make an impact on defense prospect yeah. in this draft. Uh, but if you're a team, like I think you referenced the Pistons, if they had the number one yeah. pick, you think that uh, I can't I say his name. I can't even just call him Zachary. Yeah, Zachary. Um, yeah. If the Pistons got their number one pick, Zachary would be the better fit because he's more of like a a scorer. So, and, and like you mentioned, there are, there are a ton of other guys in contention for the number one pick. But you wanted to to uh, you know discuss the two Frenchies. So yeah, yeah, I, I think it'll come down to fit. Sar to me is like you mentioned. I mean, he's got the sort of intangible on paper attributes that really like pop when you're talking about number one pick. You know, talk about like the wingspan, the athleticism, all that. Zachary, on the other hand, maybe doesn't have that stuff, but has played very well and is deserving to be in the mix. I will say, as someone who's watched very little, like the the only real scouting I've done is like just clips, highlights, you know, YouTube videos of other people breaking down prospects, things like that. So I don't, I, you know, I don't really take my my opinion for 
for much, but I will say that when I watch Zachary, it feels like, he, you know, he's a solid player, you know, someone that will definitely come to the NBA and contribute, but I don't really see like, I don't see the top five pick sort of upside with him where with Sar, like you said, you compared him to like a Jaron Jackson Jr. or a Mobley type. That's a guy I would love to pick in the top five. That's someone that I think yeah. if you're a team that really needs a core piece to add, like that's someone you could feel good about adding. Zachary, I feel like is more maybe just like complimentary. Like, cause even like, even if he is Michael Porter Jr. I mean, you think about the type of player he is now, like he, he's a complimentary scorer. I would say obviously at a, at a very high level, one of the best in the NBA, but like you're not putting Michael Porter Jr. on his own team and saying, okay, let's see what you develop into. You know what I mean? He, he's sure. he's additive to someone else's sort of offensive engine. So I would definitely lean Sar in this conversation, but I'm very, very far away from even making a big board. So I think guys that people are going to be a little bit like shocked at just how high they could rise in this process. So Reed Shepard's one, the freshman from Kentucky. Yep. Have you ever seen, like, first of all, that's the definition of go white boy, go. He has that dog in him. Yeah. He's he's got, yeah. If you x-ray, it'd be two pit bulls right next to his heart. It's crazy. I have never seen a guy be like, he's scraping six, three, and he's such a dynamic two way player. Like dude has stripped so many of like the most elite ball handlers. I love it. Cody Williams as like just a natural fluid hooper. Like he he reminds me, and this is gonna be crazy because you're you're not gonna you're not gonna like this comparison at, at all. Oh boy. But like he he reminds me of like this like kind of like six eight version. Because first of all, people don't know this, or some people do, but J Dub right now, this is his brother. And Cody has so much wiggle in his game. It's crazy. He's like this weird hybrid of like the fluidity of Tracy McGrady, but the actual skill set of like Jalen Rose. Like He's got like the wiggle of like a dynamic ball handler and playmaker, but he's not going to have that ceiling. And I, but I really like him as a prospect. Buzelis is another guy. So he's playing on the G league ignite team right now. He is a six 11 mid range assassin, deep ball shooter. Like he, his floater game is crazy. My only issue is, is that he's, he's much more like a wing that's playing out of position than he is like an actual wing. Right. 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 He's a four. And you know, to be honest, if if Toronto is in this side of the draft, I wouldn't take him at like five or six, but some people that are like absolutely being slipped on Kevin McCuller. Oh, Oh dude. He's a senior at Kansas. So he's going to be an older draft prospect. He, I think he's going to be like 24 by the time he shoots up. I know, but he's like, Oh dude. So well-rounded. He's one of those people that you draft at like number like 10 or 11, that starts for you like right away. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, like, late lottery is where you you see like the best older prospects end up going. Yeah. yeah. Um, some guys where I think people are kind of like talking a bit too much of um Jacoby Walter. He's mm-hmm. from Baylor. I think you've have you seen some of his like Baylor stuff? Yeah, he's, some he's clips. Very much yeah, that... I'm familiar with his game, but like not necessarily a scouting report. Okay. Yeah. I think there's, there's got like, there's, there's stuff where people are just like, they would take Jacoby Walter over like Rob Dillingham. And that makes no sense to me. Like Dillingham's a dog. One thing I've noticed about Dillingham though, he's really good. If you watch a full game, I get the sense that like people don't like him, like his teammates. Like if you just watch sort of the dead ball stuff, like he really doesn't seem like he's very well liked, which is something, something to keep an eye on. I think he's he's very talented. Here's what I will say about this stupid, stupid Kentucky lineup. So he he is on the shorter side. He's he's more of like a Lou Will spark plug scorer. Yeah. But he just they they literally will avoid him 
when he's like trying to get in rhythm. They will not swing on the mm -hmm. rock. It's super frustrating to me because I'm always like, I, I think it's something worth noting. Like, I think that's something that, you know, I'd like to know more about before we get to the draft because I think that matters. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you just are not well liked by the people that you're playing with, like, that makes you a worse basketball player, in my opinion. You know, like, that's why I don't really like Trey Young's game because I imagine that if I was his teammate, I would hate playing with Trey Young. It seems yeah. awful. So, yeah, I think that's something that definitely matters. It could affect his draft stock. And it's, uh, you know, in, in theme with our storylines pot here today, it's something that I'll be watching uh, yeah. for the to rest not, of Kentucky season. To not try to, to make like a, a complicated draft process even more complicated, there was a lot of guys in this draft that are, are legitimate, like huge risers in the actual mm -hmm. draft prospect, like in the process when they do workouts. Yeah. And there's some guys that I think are going to like shock people with how far they fall. Like, to, to, for example, a lot of you guys remember Zach Eddy. Like Zach Eddy was like a kind of like Instagram phenom. He's like seven, three, he's a 300 pounder below the rim, not a shooter at all. And he's a senior at Purdue. And he's like, he's a human highlight reel when he was in high school. And some people are talking like end of the first round. And it's like, if he's not take like, he's like Miami could grab him at like 15, 16, 17. And then you're like, Oh my God, like there's their, you know, replace of center for the future slide band back to the four. Like it's, it's these kind of guys where people are going to like write them off because they're not putting up like 21, five and six in college. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be like, Oh, well he's very flat footed and he might not, you know, translate into the NBA. It's like, you're, you're about to take a guy like, I one of the random names like uh Stefan Castle. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't take a shot I will, at my Huskies. Don't take a I will, shot at my I will boys. take a shot at your Huskies just whoa. because I've seen I've seen him strictly off of like kind of like random intangibles. I've seen him being compared to like like a taller version of like faults in terms of his like athleticism, drive to the basket. He's like not that. like a, a, a crazy like well. I like you know, that comment. Listen, 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 listen. I'm not directly, but like, you know, guys like that where you would take him late lottery or maybe like late in the first round and people are just like, oh yeah, I would take him over Ron Holland. It's like, shut up, shut up. Well, damn, it's it's kind of crazy to say that because I was going to wrap up by mentioning my UConn boys and how well Stefan Castle has been playing of late. He's been racking up Big East Freshman of the Weeks um, for a while now. One of the best freshmen in the nation. So shout out to UConn. Shout out my boy Stefan Castle. Um, you know who's projected to take him? The Don't Raptors. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that. Him <laughs> and IQ, I think, would be an interesting backcourt. He's got good size. Yeah, the Zach Eady. Yeah, he's like six eight, though. isn't he? He's like six. Seven, no, six, he's more six five, six six ish. He, really? He's like oversized point oh, guard. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, as far as Zach Eady goes, man, he's interesting because, like, if you asked me last year for last draft, like, I would have been like, no, undrafted. Like, no way, I'm not putting him on my board. He's just he's really damn good, man. Like, I don't think his game is going to translate to the NBA. I really don't. Yeah. But I mean, for a non-shooting center. That's the kind of archetype you want. That's fair. I, but, I mean, he is incredibly slow. He, he's going to get torched on the perimeter. Um, but I don't know. He, he's really damn good. So if he ends up going first round, I can't, I can't blame whoever takes him. But, uh, yeah, I think that does it for this episode. We're, uh, we're approaching the final stretch run here of the regular season and uh, a lot of interesting things to, to keep an eye on. So uh, we'll definitely be back with another episode next week. It will be on video, which is very exciting stuff. But uh, that's it for this one. Mitch, thank you for your time, viewers. Or I guess they're not viewers yet, but you will be next week. Thank you. And I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend.